You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. We've got another team interview coming your way, listeners. This time is Seth Rosenthal here to talk about the New York Knicks, a team that certainly had its ups and downs this season. Seth is an editor for SBNation.com and also the SB Nation Knicks blog, Posting and Toasting. A fun fact about him is that he once met Neil Armstrong at the salad bar of a fundraiser they were both attending. Aaron, do the honors. Hey Seth, are you ready to talk some Knicks basketball? Absolutely, always. We certainly are. The Knicks got off to a really good start. They opened the season at 22 and 22, and they were looking like they had a real shot at the playoffs. The advanced stats showed significant offensive and defensive improvements from last season. Since then, the defensive rating has really taken a hit it's 109 over their last 16 games in which they've gone 3-13. and 13. Other than, obviously, the drafting of Porzingis, which we'll get to later. And they're just healthier. But outside of those two things, how is it coming together this season? What's gone wrong since? Yeah, it feels almost like uh, the worst thing that happened to them that they started the year that strong because now they look so terrible in comparison. I think they they got hot for a little while, but this is a pretty unmistakably incomplete half-built roster, which is all that any reasonable person expected after you know they completely stripped down to nothing but mellow the previous year. So no matter what they do, and no matter you know if they continue to sink for the rest of the season, they will have improved considerably. But earlier in the season, they yeah, they were, I think there was a combination of them being maybe a little bit more bought in and a little bit maybe better coached by Fisher than they are by Rambus. But I think a lot of it is just teams realizing how faulty their backcourt is defensively and how constantly they need to be attacking that backcourt. There were a lot of times where you would watch the Knicks manage a game against a better team and sort of wonder why an opposing point guard like John Wall or Jeff Teague or pretty much anyone who's better than Jose Calderon, which is most of the league, um, wasn't putting the ball on the floor more and breaking down the defense and pulling the Knicks' solid defensive bigs out of the paint a little bit more. And I think teams by January had figured out that pretty much everybody should be doing that all the time. The biggest addition to the team came in the drafting of Kristaps Porzingis. Where has he most exceeded expectations, and where does he still have room to grow? Kurt Rambis says that he doesn't like Kristaps' shot selection at times, but it seems like he's shown exceptionally high basketball IQ, especially for someone his age and experience level. Yeah, he's he's really smart, and I, I'm certain he can handle that criticism from Kurt Rambis and take it in stride. And I, I'm not thrilled with Kurt Rambis using the media, sort of Phil Jackson style, but less less nimbly to say that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, on the court, Przingis looked like he would be, and this is this is the result of stereotyping and limited research. But I think a lot of people assumed he would be a big, weak, shooting big man, kind of stiff, not a great defender. You know, all the European foreign player stereotypes. However, he's been a very versatile scorer. If anything, his outside catch-and-shoot game is the the weakest part of his scoring repertoire. 
he's been a, a really solid defender. He makes plenty of mistakes on that end, but they are mistakes generally of timing and overambition instead of a lack of effort or of understanding. So he really looks like if he continues to grow, if he's well-developed, uh, if he stays healthy, like he's going to have a, an extremely well-rounded game, a two-way game, you know, to say the least, but also someone who can defend on the floor, someone who can help and protect the rim. Um, and at the other end, someone who can catch and spread the floor from outside, but also handle the ball a little bit, pass the ball from all different locations, you know, finish in the pick and roll and hopefully score a bit as a post-up big man as well. He's, he's really awesome. And he's, he's been fun to watch, fun to enjoy off the court. Even as, as the season has taken a downward turn, he's been just made everything worthwhile. Speaking of off the court, Porzingis seems to handle the media extremely well and is avoiding trouble as, as a rookie. How important is that, especially for someone playing in the, the media circus spotlight that is New York? It's crucial. It's really crucial. You know, he's going through a losing season. He's going through a coaching change. He's going through the star player on his team being surrounded by trade rumors. And he's just coasting through all of it. He really he, he knows how to give good answers. He knows how to back up the things he says on the court. And he really seems like a you know, intelligent and, and thoughtful person who has good people around him as well and is really thriving. And like you said, what is a difficult spotlight at any year, but is especially tough when A, you were like a controversial first round pick and B, you're dealing with a pretty difficult first season. Yeah. Speaking of the coaching change, when Derek Fisher was fired earlier in the season, a lot of people were somewhat surprised about that, even though the Knicks had gone into a little bit of a downside. They were 1-9 and nine in his final 10 games as head coach. But after that, a lot of rumors about him off the court started coming out. A lot of people were speculating that he hadn't really made the mental transition from being a player to a coach in the NBA. Can you give us a little bit more context behind the firing of Derek Fisher and where it all went wrong? Yeah, I, I would say, first of all, on the court, it was palpable that the team wasn't quite responding to him like they were before or whether or not it was him the defense that you have to play as a team with several weak links and the offense you have to play as a team running the triangle depends I think even more so than than other team schemes do on just brute effort if the Knicks aren't cutting if the Knicks aren't dribbling over screens and using their screens and attacking the glass and stuff like that I think that actually hampers them more than teams that are more open in their structure and perhaps a little more athletically gifted. And so after they'd been really unbelievably adept and really unbelievably hardworking, guys were starting to flag a little bit, which I think is the natural rhythm of the season. But I think increasingly, I guess, within the team became attributed to Fisher. Um, and some of that might have to do with the things you've heard uh, in rumors, which is basically that he, you know, players live a certain lifestyle, coaches live a certain lifestyle. I, I may have heard a little more than, than what's out there and can say that basically the things that have been rumored have been reported are some of them completely true. Some of them definitely sound like they could be true. And he's perhaps someone who was, you know, still not taking the time between the games uh, totally seriously, which is which is his own choice, but I think may have rubbed players in the front office the wrong way and, you know, may have contributed to guys not necessarily, not necessarily being willing to go out there and give their all for him. But, you know, I'm not inside the locker room, I can't say for sure, but I do have reason to believe that 
whatever rumors we've heard about him are at least close to the truth. And what are the biggest differences you've seen so far with Rambis as head coach now? He has a team scrimmaging a lot more in practices and working on their communication and passing, at least he says. But yeah. he's also called the Knicks an immature team sometimes. You've already expressed that you don't like how he's using the media to air that out. Yeah, uh, I would say the primary difference is that Fisher, for whatever he was doing off the court, made a point of being very short with the media, very serious, sort of fatherly and almost protective of his players. And Kurt Rams is just running his mouth. I think there's a happy medium between those two things. Um, and I think the media certainly appreciates not being condescended to, which I think was their perception of Fisher's relationship with them. On the court, I don't know. You know, Rambis, they're, they're running a similar offensive system. I think Rambis has gone to Robin Lopez a little bit more, although that's changed in the last couple games. Rambis's rotation is hard to pin down at this point. He had been playing a lot of Sasa Vujicic and a very long rotation with very little Jaron Grant up until pretty much Friday. And then Friday, he rotation-wise looked like Fisher at his best, you know, keeping it pretty short, keeping Sasha off the floor, letting Jaron Grant spin. But he's been uh, unpredictable, and obviously it's a short sample at this point, so you know there, there wouldn't be that much to predict no matter what. But it seems like most of the same stuff, most of the same issues, both with you know trust in the rotation and with just getting the team the best possible possessions at, at crucial moments. And yeah, I'm interested to see what Phil Jackson thinks of that long term, uh, because I'm not sure that strategically, if not philosophically, Rambis is all that different from Fisher. So do you expect him to hold on to the job past this season? Or if not, out of the realistic Phil Jackson candidates, who do you think you would like to get a shot at that? That's tough. I, I mean, Rambis, I, I don't think he's going to make it beyond this year. I think Phil likes him a lot. And if the Knicks were like sweeping this entire 20 to 30 game stretch that he inherited, then maybe that would be a possibility. But, you know, they probably have another win streak left in them, but I don't think he's going to leave this season with a good record or anything. So I would imagine he'll probably stay on the staff of whoever the next coach is. As far as the next coach, it's it's so tough when it's Phil. And this was the case back when they hired Fisher, because on one hand, you know, if you cast a really wide net, there are guys out there, you know, Tom Thibodeau's out there and he's a great coach. He's got some history in New York that may or may not help him because he's not necessarily close with James Dolan, but also is close with CAA, which represents like half the people related to the Knicks. So I don't know how they feel about him. And then there's the added layer of, I don't know how Phil feels about him, but he certainly, certainly on an objective basis seems like the strongest candidate. If you're looking only at players and coaches who already have a relationship with Phil Jackson and who are, you know, open triangle acolytes, which is sort of funny because Thibodeau and like a lot of coaches has a ton of triangle in the offense that he's run before. But anyway, if you're limiting yourself to guys who have established public relationships with Phil, and we're talking about Brian Shaw and Luke Walton and a handful of guys on the next bench, I don't know. Take your pick. I mean, Walton at least has the, the gleam of having worked with these Warriors, although I really have no reason to believe he's a good head coach. Brian Shaw, I, we have reason to believe he's a pretty bad head coach. So it's it's tough to pick. I'm I wouldn't rule out though it being someone you haven't necessarily if you're not a Knicks fan heard of from the Knicks bench right now I I get the sense that he's sort of combing through the staff that he has which is part his guys part Fisher's guys that he brought with him from OKC to see if maybe there's something there 
I also wouldn't rule out Mike Miller, not the player, but the coach of the D-League Knicks, the Westchester Knicks, who are having a fantastic season and who do run the triangle. You never know there. I just, it's, it's totally unpredictable with Phil. I think if it were any other team, I would assume they would go hard after Thibodeau. Jackson might not even interview him. I really have no idea what to expect, but he likes to project the image that he's not necessarily married to the pure basic, you know, double post triangle offense. And is it's more of a spiritual and you know leadership philosophy based thing, but I, I have no idea what to expect from him. You said it. It's always fascinating with Phil. So it'll be interesting to follow what they do in the coaching arena. But now talking about just team building moving forward, they opted to make no moves at the trade deadline. Unfortunately, the Knicks won't have a first round pick in the upcoming draft. But as you've alluded to, they still have plenty of areas where they need to upgrade their roster. In your mind, what's the next step for them in the rebuilding process as they try to assemble a team around Porzingis? They desperately need guards. I really think this team isn't terribly far from being at least decent, but they need an NBA average point guard at least. So I I think they were interested in Jeff Teague. I think they were interested in Ricky Rubio and just found that without a pick that they were comfortable dealing, which would be 2018 is the next one they can deal. And I certainly hope this organization is done trading first-round draft picks that blindly. Anyway, so that that sort of put them out of those sweepstakes. But I, I think they will remain active on that trade market this summer. I think they'll probably do their best to get Mike Conley Jr. But it wouldn't take a, a major signing really to upgrade at that position. And I think that will very clearly be the emphasis because they have a pretty strong front court in place. They have a decent amount of depth, either already under contract or in decent position to be re-signed. And they need guys who can defend their own men on defense and can like run a simple pick and roll on offense because Jose Calderon and Aaron Aflalo are very direly not those people. <laughs> I'm curious to hear more about their guards, namely Jerry and Grant, their first-round pick, and Langston Galloway. Jerry and Grant has had three DNPs under Kurt Rambis, and so the playing time ha- has been inconsistent there. Mm-hmm. He alluded to, um, in I think a recent interview a couple of days ago, that Grant was learning from the bench. I think a lot of people might disagree with that, but it does help when you can sit next to an assistant that's giving you a lot of input on the game. I, I believe it was Jim Clemens. Yeah. yeah, and then Langston Galloway's minutes have gone down this season. Calderon's been healthy all year. But Phil Jackson really likes Langston Galloway. Can you tell me a little bit about those two guards and where they are in their progressions? They're both really young. Yeah, if you combine those two guards, or if you combine all three of the next guards, you'd have a hell of a point guard. You know, Calderon, first of all, can shoot the hell out of the ball and has nothing else to offer. Really nothing else. He's like a, a mini Steve Novak, which is <laughs> which is a player you can have on your team, but you don't want starting at point guard in a, you don't in want a fairly thirty minutes. Right. No, exactly. Langston Galloway is pretty awesome. He's athletic. He's very athletic. He's really a dogged on ball defender who will make, you know, a mistake couple times per game, but going back to last season has locked down some some very solid opposing guards of, of all sizes. He's got really long arms and can do a lot at that end. He's, he's smart. On offense, he's he started the season shooting ridiculously well and then regressed from there to a more reasonable level. And he is athletic getting to the rim. He, his shot selection isn't always great. He's not a natural point guard whatsoever. Not very confident in pick and roll. 
not the best ball handler, but as a backup guard, as a guy who can play on or off the ball and defend on or off the ball, he's definitely worthy of minutes. And he has a much more positive influence on any lineup he's in than Calderon does pretty much across the board. Grant is sort of the converse of that. I mean, he shares the the issue of not really knowing where his shots are supposed to come. He's awesome in an up-tempo offense. He already runs a really good pick and roll. He's, I think, not a very good one-on-one defender now, though he's, you know, he'll grab steals now and then. But, you know, neither of them is great. Both of them are probably better in any lineup that Calderon is, although neither can shoot nearly as well. I think both can turn into solid NBA players, if not quite good NBA players. Grant has a lot of developing to do. Galloway has sort of more role finding to do, I would say. Yeah, and I I understand why Knicks fans are pretty irritated that Rambis doesn't turn to Grant quite a bit, and hopefully Friday night was a sign that he'll play more. I'm not sure Jan Grant helps the Knicks that much right now, but they're a losing team. They're probably not going to make the playoffs. You know, might as well let them go. Yeah. Lance Thomas is another guy Phil Jackson likes. And and when I say a guy that Phil Jackson likes, a lot of that I'm taking from the Phil Files, which I think was a really cool feature that ESPN did. Gave a lot of insight into his thinking on personnel decisions. But it was kind of funny what he said about Lance Thomas. He said that he kind of he has a funny gait and funny release on his shot, but that he really likes him. He praised his attitude on and off the court. I'm curious, in your mind, what he's done for the Knicks this season and where he fits moving forward. He's been by far the most improved player in the Knicks. I I mean, I think he should be a candidate for most improved player in the league because, like you said, and like Phil said via Charlie Rosen, the guy was and is still incredibly awkward. He He looks like he's sort of galloping around on the floor. His shots all take like half an hour to get off, and it looks like he's loading up a trebuchet or something. And yet... The guy is just dynamic this season. He's not a crazy good three-point shooter uh, at this point, but he, he you know, he's hits those well enough that he should be shooting them. He's over forty percent now too, yeah, even though he which doesn't is crazy. Yeah, and like this is a guy who was not at all a three-point shooter as recently as last season. I think part of what Fisher did really well with him is realize that he is a a big wing and not a not a small four. Uh, and so he was guarding a lot of smaller players and using his surprising quickness to stay in front of like James Harden and things like that. And yeah, he's he's smart. He knows the offense. He can finish like he has 10 dunks this season that would have dropped my jaw straight down onto the floor had I seen them last season. And yeah, he hits those threes. He knows how to pass. He he just kind of does everything solidly and is having one of the better contract years you can imagine. So I, I hope the Knicks can keep him around. He's really, he's a local guy. He's, he seems like a great teammate. He's been a really fun sort of like reclamation project to watch the Knicks uh, seize upon. And yeah, it's cool that Phil recognizes his, his excellence, I guess. And it's cool that the Knicks saw some potential in him and actually were able to see it to its fruition. And so uh, in what has become a pretty bleak season, he has been a real reason for optimism. Another small forward on the roster, a guy by the name of Carmelo Anthony, is um, somewhat quietly putting together another good statistical season. He's the only player in the NBA this season who leads his team in points, rebounds, and assists. Would you say he's being overlooked? Well, you know, he's on a bad team. He's been hurt, you know, on and off for the whole season since he had surgery, or at least, you know, in need of recovery time, if not actively injured. 
and he's shooting pretty badly relative to his already, you know, not the most efficient numbers in previous seasons. So for those reasons, I can understand why he's not being talked about as one of the league's best players. He was an all-star starter, so it's hard to hard to say he's overlooked. But if people are overlooking him, I think they're neglecting the fact that, like you said, he's he's been at his best rebounding this season. He's passing the ball better than I've ever seen, at least for a consistent stretch. He's always you know, giving you flickers of great passing, but this season it's really an every-night thing. He's approached a triple-double a couple times because, like I said, either at the top of the pick-and-roll or you know, working out of double teams or in the post, he's actively looking for the open man and hitting each of his teammates you know, in stride going to the rim or on the weak side shooting a three-pointer. And I would say he's holding his own defensively. He's probably come down a bit after what was a remarkably good start to the season as a one-on-one defender. But for all the weakness in his knee and the trouble he's had scoring, he's been that much better in other realms of his game. And so I can understand why people would overlook him, especially with all you know the kinds of stuff that stars are doing elsewhere in the league. But I think Knicks fans have to be satisfied with the way he's played this year, especially considering that he's coming off surgery. And, you know, if he is part of the long-term plan, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about what he has to offer. There were a lot of rumors surrounding Melo at the trade deadline. To what extent do you believe that there was actually the flirtation there of trading him? And do you think it makes sense to actively shop him? Uh, I would say, first of all, I believe what was reported and what was reported, despite how it got sort of blown up, wasn't really that much. It was that the Celtics and the Cavs had been talking about some sort of blockbuster deal and they called the Knicks. That's really the end of it. That's all the, <laughs> that's all that came out of that. And, you know, you know, nothing happened because Melo wouldn't waive his no trade clause. And that could mean the Knicks said, Hey, Melo, we want to trade you to the Cavs or Celtics. Will you waive your no trade clause? And he said, no, or more probably it just means that they picked up the phone and said, no, Melo is not interested in being traded. So no, we're not talking to you. And so that to me is, you know, there's a lot of gray area in what was reported. And if no one's telling me that the Knicks are trying to trade Mello and that Mello wants to be traded, then I'm going to assume that's not the case. Because if that were the case, they would be saying it. So until, until that's reported, my assumption is that the only way Mello gets traded is if he is the person to initiate that conversation. His having a no trade clause makes it a little weird for the Knicks to pursue trades without his consent and without him signing off on that first because if say you find a deal you like and then you go to Mello and you say all right buddy we found a way to send you to Phoenix and he says no I'm not going to go to Phoenix I'd rather stay here then you've created a very awkward situation so you know because Phil has already committed to Carmelo Anthony because he's having a good year because Przingis loves him I think everyone's on the same page. You know, maybe there is, maybe I'm being naive and the Knicks are trying to deal him behind his back and just hoping they can force him to, to waive his no trade clause. You know, maybe they're, maybe they're, people have said this, maybe they're letting, you know, Rambus coach the team and so he can guide the team out of the playoffs and Melo will want to be traded. I don't know. Melo has certainly hinted that, you know, missing, missing the playoffs is going to hurt and will upset him and, that in the future he may reconsider his options. But for the time being, I I have seen nothing despite the amount of noise to make me believe that the Knicks have any interest in trading Melo and that Melo has any interest in leaving the Knicks. And, you know, that latter thing is most important. And so until we hear from him, I assume it's going to be status quo in that regard. 
And you talked about this a little bit before, but one of the big moves that the Knicks made this offseason, other than drafting Porzingis, obviously, was giving Robin Lopez a big contract and having him be the defensive anchor at center. Can you talk about the impact that had on the team and how he fits in going forward? Uh, It has had a great impact. I think he's, it took him a little while to get comfortable, but I think he was a terrific signing at a fair price. He's not an all-world player defensively. I think we saw like Friday night, for instance, against the Magic um, when he had to guard Nikola Vucevic that against uh, smaller teams and teams with bigs who can stretch the floor, he he struggles a little bit because he's not the most mobile person on earth. But as a rim protector and as someone who can guard the big brutish guys who still roam the post, he's as good as anyone. And my favorite thing about him this year is that he's really rediscovered his offensive game. And I think we maybe saw some of that from him back when he was in New Orleans. I have heard from people that he showed a lot of this in college, but the guy's got a, it's not attractive, but it's a pretty effective post game. He's got an array of hooks. He can drop step and get to the rim. He's increasingly comfortable in the pick and roll, although his guards don't necessarily put him in the best positions. He has a jumper that he will take, although it will not usually go in. And so I think a lot of people bristled at the idea of Robin Lopez as a, you know, force-fed triangle big man trying to make stuff happen out of the post, but he's looked great, I think. I think he's looked as impressive on offense as he has on defense. There are games when he doesn't get to play a lot, you know, because of the opposing lineup, and there are games where he goes kind of quiet. But I think if you, you know, you mentioned Przingis being a bit of a win, and I think Lopez being the big signing of the summer also looks to me like a win. And, you know, with only one summer to get that kind of stuff done, I think the biggest moves were were struck pretty well by Jackson. Yeah, as we've talked about, President Phil Jackson seems to have his fingerprints all over everything about how this team is run, the kind of system that they play. And you've even called his adherence to the triangle almost sort of a religious dogma or spiritual thing as much as a on-the-court system. Firstly, I wanted to ask you if you think in today's NBA, an ideal triangle system can still work. And also more broadly, with how he's running the team, do you think it's good to have such a defined vision? Or if that kind of adherence is limiting the team that he isn't flexible that much about the type of players he's getting i think if a coach's idea of running the triangle offense is to always run the you know one through four triangle options always try to dump the ball into the post first and get a lot of mid-range shots and you know get to the rim only with entry passes and not penetration and not take every available three-pointer if it's open and the shooter is good, then that is a major problem. I don't get the sense, at least most of the time, that that's what Phil Jackson wants out of his coach. I don't get the sense that that's what Derek Fisher wanted out of his team. And I don't get the sense, and you know, I'm, I'm referring most of all to that like Word document that Phil Jackson tweeted right after uh, he fired Fisher. I don't get the sense that he is devoted to you know a Tex Winter disciple as, as his uh, next coach, I just think he the triangle is a really good default. It's a really good set of habits for a team to have if everything else breaks down or if they're not running a play, you know, whatever. They're just trying to get people comfortable. It's definitely something to be built upon. It needs wrinkles, it needs counters, it needs elements of the you know more modern game like the spread pick and roll and fast breaks and those sorts of things built into it. 
And I think Fisher was actually working in that direction. And, you know, Rambus doesn't seem too opposed to it either. And I think a lot of the next sort of backward habits are product of the personnel that they play. So yeah, I think if you're running a, a pure rigid offense of any kind, really, then I think you're pretty much boned in today's NBA. But I hope, and I like to think this is not just hope, but actual reason based on what I've seen and read, that the Knicks aren't looking to run a super old school offense generating a bunch of ISOs and mid-range jumpers. I think Phil has principles that he really likes that apply both to you know very tangible things like where guys should be cutting and filling space on the court and more general things like leadership style and less tangible, uh, more spiritual, like you said, things that go into both the culture of the team and the way they run their system. And I don't know, a lot of what he says just sounds like crap you know, means something only to him. And so it's possible he's going to go out and hire Brian Shaw and Brian Shaw is going to stick Chris Porzingis in the post and just let some garbage point guard try to like lob entry passes into him for two years. And that would be really bad. But I have some hope that Phil is looking for someone who like a lot, of, like a ton of very successful coaches in the NBA works a lot of triangle into their system and, you know, runs these two and three guard fronts and mixes in some pick and roll, but, you know, plays out of the post a lot and wants his big men to pass, but adds adds some individual flavor to whatever they run and has whatever shaman-like spiritual qualities and leadership attributes that Phil is looking for in a coach. But like I said, when we were talking about candidates, it's just, it's very hard to figure out what that dude wants until he does it. Yeah, you never really predict what, what Phil Jackson is going to do. Earlier, Aaron mentioned the Phil Files. Briefly, do you think all that transparency was too much? It was certainly great from a journalistic perspective, at least. Yeah, it's it's funny for a Knicks fan to complain about transparency after years of James Dolan, you know, keeping everyone from talking to anyone. I would say that it was cool to know what Phil was thinking, albeit months later, because that was stuff that was published after the season, but taken from during the season in a, a sort of ju- journal format. I think... Phil has a long history of saying whatever he wants about people who work for him without worrying about repercussions. I can understand why, you know, someone like J.R. Smith might be a little bit upset that Phil aired out months after the guy was traded that, you know, he was having girl trouble or it was having personal stuff affect him on the court. I object somewhat to Phil's choice of Charlie Rosen as the guy who acts as his messenger because he is a little bit sloppy and his own basketball opinions come and go in terms of their logic and accessibility. So I would say on the whole, I would prefer, uh, you know, a president like Phil who is willing to speak his mind and willing to put his word out there than someone who never speaks at all, but you got to take the bad with the good. And I think Phil does have a habit of saying things that might be uncouth or, you know, break some sort of unwritten rule or, maybe throw his players or coaches under the bus sometimes. But like you said, it's interesting at least. This is the last question for you, Seth. And just to reiterate, we really appreciate you coming on. It's been a really good time and we've learned a lot. The last question's about assist percentage and ISOs. The assist percentage has dropped significantly from last season, about six percentage points nearly. But they're the fourth highest isolation percentage in the league. And they've been really good in ISOs, probably in large part because of Porzingis and Carmelo Anthony's success in that area. What do you make of those interesting stats? 
Yeah, uh, the Knicks don't strike me as a particularly, you know, a bunch of selfish guys or a team that doesn't move the ball. But a lot of what they do, and this is partly triangle stuff, this is partly having, you know, your leading shooters being guys like Mello, who's obviously an ISO hound, and Aaron Aflalo, who thinks he's Kobe, and Przingis, who is, you know, still trying to get comfortable with what his game is. Um, I think you end up with a lot of decent ball movement, you know, getting late in the clock and just sort of putting guys in position to go one-on-one as opposed to, say, Mello dribbling out an entire shot clock by himself and going for it on his own. But yeah, when, when you got Mello healthy, which they didn't have from a, a bunch of last season, and you have Aaron Aflalo taking every available possession when Mello doesn't have the ball, you're going to get a lot of ISO. And I would like to see them back off that a little bit, but at least aesthetically, it's not that terrible. You know, it's, I think ISO has a, has a bad rap, but the Knicks do have some competent ISO players. But I would say last season, you know, the only reason their numbers weren't um, similar is that Melo missed a big chunk of the season. And so they were basically sharing the ball amongst a, amongst a bunch of really terrible scorers who were bad, but were very diplomatic in sharing the ball. If you can just give a one-word answer to this, will Aaron Aflalo exercise his player option next season, in your opinion? No. Derek Williams? No. And you would I, you like it that way? Yeah, I don't I don't I would not love either of those guys to stick around. And I think this is this is a complete guess, but I think that pretty much everyone who has the option to go make money this summer is gonna do that because there's a lot of money to be made. Thanks again for your great contributions today. Good luck to the Knicks and you on your reporting. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.